The Da Da Di Da Da Code by Robert Rankin. Chapter 43. When, in the early 1800s, John Haslam, the doctor in overall control of St. Mary of Bethlehem Asylum, interviewed the inmate James Tilly Matthews regarding his extraordinary claims that his mind was under almost constant assault by magnetic emanations delivered to him via the medium of an heirloom, Mr. Matthews was able to supply Mr. Haslam with a wealth of specific information. He explained to Haslam that the apparatus called by the assassins that manipulate it an heirloom machine or pneumatic machine might be said, in part, to resemble a keyhole or partner's desk, although magnified in size. In bigness, it would appear some nine feet in length, six in height, and another seven in depth. Large drawers to either side of it, and between something like pianoforte keys, which open tube valves within the heirloom to spread or feed the warp of magnetic fluid. To either side of these keys, lever by which the assailed is wrenched, stagnated, and the sudden death efforts made upon him. Above are a cluster of upright open glass tubes, which the assassins term their musical glasses. These are of extreme importance, for within these the magnetic fluxes condense and are dispelled. I am given to understand that these glasses are of a fragility and a volatility wherein explosive forces are pent. I could never ascertain what the bulky upper parts were, although I discerned paddle, or windmill-like attachments, but the barrels I saw distinctly, witnessing the famous gooseneck retorts, which supply the heirloom with the distilled gases, as well as the poisoned magnetics. The preparations within these barrels are of the most dreadful content. Sexual fluid, both male and female, effluvia of copper, ditto of sulfur, vapors of vitriol and aqua fortis, belladonna and hellbore, effluvia of dogs, stinking human breath, putrid effluvia of mortification, and the plague, stench of the cesspool, gas from the anus of a horse, human gas, gas from a horse's greasy heels, Egyptian snuff, this is a dusty vapor, extremely nauseous. Poison of Toad, Otto of Roses. He also furnished Haslam with a catalogue of terrible torments that the manipulators of this hellish contrivance were able to visit upon their sorry and magnetized victims via the medium of a flux projected through the ether from machine to unfortunate target. Space forbids the inclusion of all, but a sample should be sufficient to convince the reader of the horrors involved. Fluid Locking a locking or constriction of the fibers of the root of the tongue, whereby the readiness of speech is impeded. Stone-making, the sensation that a precipitation exists within the bladder, as it were a stone or obstruction. Kiting, this is a very singular and distressing mode of assailment, much practiced by the gang, in which ideas that are alien to the victim are kited, or floated, into his head by means of the magnetic impregnations. The idea that is kited keeps waving in his mind, and he becomes incapable of concentrating upon any other. Lobster cracking. The external pressure of the magnetic atmosphere surrounding the victim is increased in order to stagnate his circulation, impede the vital motions, and produce instant death. Other equally terrifying torments include stomach skinning, lengthening the brain, thought-making, 
bladder filling, gas plucking, bomb bursting, apoplexy working, thigh talking, and cutting soul from sense. It has been argued with vigor by those who value the currency of present-day psychiatry above that of intuition that Matthews was a paranoid schizophrenic who had created a delusional architecture of considerable detail, sufficient indeed to convince anyone other than the doctors who attended him, but was nonetheless, to those doctors, nothing more than a lunatic when it came right down to it. Hence Mr. Matthews' twelve-year incarceration in Bedlam, regarding which it was fairly stated that if you're not mad when they commit you, you soon will be. So, some things never change. Logic informed the keepers of Bedlam that a device, such as the heirloom, could not possibly exist. And the reason that such a device could not exist was because a device such as an heirloom could not possibly exist. These doubters of the heirloom's reality based their doubts upon a number of premises. The technology to create an heirloom did not exist. The madness of Matthews was, however, a symptom of an age of wonders, an age of scientific breakthroughs, of new and awesome machines, of the animal magnetism of mesmer, of electrical experimentation, of a general paranoia sweeping the nation, its flames stoked by the French Revolution, a fear of spies, the reds under the beds of the day, the fear of the new. Everywhere were quack doctors and crazy scientists, experimentation, Magical, magnetical, metaphysical. Why, it was enough to drive the sanest fellow mad. And there was just too much of it about. And so Matthews, a somewhat excitable fellow by nature, had got an electrical, magnetical, pneumatic bee in his bonnet. He had gone off the rails. He was, indeed, insane. And what made James Tilly Matthews memorable was that he was the first recorded mental patient who claimed that voices were being put into his head through the medium of an influencing machine. When it came to paranoid schizophrenic conspiracy nuts, James Tilly Matthews was patient zero. So that explains that, really. In a nutcase, as it were. As it were. Count Otto Black pulled out one of the organ stop jobbies atop the pianoforte keyboard of the heirloom, adjusted something that might very well have been a flux capacitator, and trotted out a well-loved chestnut kind of jobby. The greatest trick the devil ever played, said the Count, with a suitable cackle, was to convince mankind that he doesn't exist. His partners in crime nodded grimly. Jack the schoolmaster muttered obscenities and the glove woman placed a sheet of what might have been music on a stand above the organ stops and fluttered her gloved fingers over the heirloom keyboard. We have the music we have, she said, and we will play, so we will. And triumph, said the Count, as I may have mentioned. A knock came at the storeroom door, and this knock went unanswered. A knock came again, a coded knock. A dwarf in a feathered bonnet answered this, I crave entrance, came a female's voice. Under whose star, came the reply from the Count. Under the master's star, which is Sirius in the Ascendant. Enter, sister, and be recognized to all. The female entered the underground chamber, a somewhat crowded chamber this. You have all that you require, she inquired of the Count. We could do with some beer, said Jack the schoolmaster. And crisps, said the glove woman. I'll send out for both and more. The female smiled upon the assembled company. The female had a certain air about her, as of authority. 
and she was a good looker too, what with the very nice breasts, the gorgeous green eyes, and the really sweet nose. The barrels, I see, have arrived, said Countess Vanda, and she wafted over to Count Otto and kissed him tenderly. Indeed, my Countess, said that man, filled to the specification of formula as I requested, I trust. Indeed, yes, heavy on the gas from a horse's anus, not to mention the toe jam. There was a pregnant pause, there was, but no one mentioned the toe jam. Lovely, said the Count, and he took Countess Vanda in his arms and kissed her passionately. I'd like a little of that, Jack the schoolmaster smirked. A dwarf tittered into his hand. Count Otto Black turned upon Jack, whose face took fear in the candlelight. We will be done here this day, said he, and when we're done, we'll stay done for another century if need be, till we're called on once more to do our duty. Oh, but tonight we shall dance and make merry, and drink, and imbibe strange drugs, and lie together in filthy congregation. I shall not say nay to that, said Jack. But for now, know your manners, my lad. I will, sir, my lord, sir. I will. Just so. Countess Vanda smiled up at Count Otto Black. The Parliament of Five are on their way here, she said. They should arrive within the hour. The talks are scheduled to begin at twelve. The loom will be in full operating order by that hour, I assume? How could it be otherwise, my love? Nicely, nicely, said the Countess. This must all be done to a nicety, and none must know of our doing. None ever know, said Count Otto, and those who do are declared mad and committed to the madhouse, such as it ever was, for some things never change. Nicely, nicely, said the Countess once more. For how could it be otherwise, said Count Otto Black. We control those who control the controllers. Bliss, that is, and the way it should be. And who, and he raised his voice and did laughings, who might there be who can stop us? Chapter 44 Johnny Hooker made some shapes, and one heroic pose. And what, pray tell me, is that supposed to be? Johnny Hooker ignored Mr. Giggles, and flexed a muscle or two. And that? What was that? What are those supposed to be? Those are muscles, said Johnny, giving his arm a bit of a squeeze, and only flinching a little. And I am throwing, as it were, a heroic pose. Right said Mr. Giggles. And for why? You know for why. Because I am going into battle against the forces of evil, a lone warrior, heroic and alone. Mr. Giggles wrinkled his nose. And more than just a bit niffy, he observed. Johnny Hooker did armpit sniffing. It didn't help, you having me put this uniform in the dustbin, said he. It's not a good look, said Mr. Giggles. And the sticking plaster all over your face? And that cap doesn't suit you at all. At least take off the cap. And Johnny Hooker made the face that says, Yeah, right. And continued to make it as he marched out of the alleyway, down his garden path, and out of his front garden. You won't get in, said Mr. Giggles, diddling about with his fez and padding along beside Johnny. Into the park. You won't get in. There's far too much security. Blokes in black uniforms guard posts, uniforms, gun nests. Let's go down to the pub. The pub won't be open, said Johnny. And how could you know that? I know that, said Johnny, 
because even as we speak, O'Fagan the landlord is upstairs in my house, nodding my mum. Oh, please, said Mr. Giggles, hiding his face with his fez. Not an image I wanted imprinted upon my soul. But you can't know that, surely. I saw him sneaking in, said Johnny. I think he and my mum have been doing the nasty for quite some time. I'm sorry that I didn't really get to shag his wife. Why don't we go back in and listen at the bedroom door? asked Mr. Giggles. Perhaps I was a little hasty. It might be fun. I think I'll just get on with the fighting the forces of evil, said Johnny. If it's all right with you. It's not all right with me. You know it's not all right with me. You go and listen at the door, then. I'm off to Gunnersbury Park. But, went Mr. Giggles, but, but, but... But me no buts, said Constable Justice. I wasn't going to, said Constable Paul. Why did you think that I would? I thought you might have some objection to me breaking down the door to the saloon bar and helping ourselves to O'Fagan's beer. Constable Paul did shruggings. You won't find me complaining about that, said he. I'll have my usual. A Guinness without the head. You'll do no such bloody thing. A hand fell upon the shoulder of Paul. Another on that of Constable Justice. The left shoulder it was. The hands adjoined arms. Separate arms. These arms terminated at shoulders. These shoulders belonged, as did all the other bodily bits and bobs. One bob in particular was now a trifle sore, as it had recently been engaged in the sexual pursuit known as taking tea with the parson, belonged to a certain Inspector Westlake. The Inspector Westlake, in fact. In case there was any confusion. Any confusion? asked Inspector Westlake. None whatsoever, sir, said Constable Justice. Constable Paul just nodded. Good, said the inspector, because there will be no on-duty drinkses this morning. We are on duty for queen and country. We have business that awaits us in Gunnersbury Park. But we just came from there, sir, said Constable Justice, edging himself away from the inspector's hand. Those bastards from Special Ops won't let us into the park. Inspector Westlake made a face that was both grim and determined. A forceful combination. As long as I have breath in my body, he declared, and he placed a hand upon his heart, I shall defend this green and skeptical island of ours. We shall enter that park. We shall do our duty. And I shall do mine, whispered Johnny, who lay in hiding near at hand and had overheard the conversation. And you think that if you follow these nitwits, you might be able to sneak into the park? Mr. Giggles didn't whisper. He shouted very, very loudly. Will you shut up? Johnny shushed him into silence. They might not be able to get in, but they might create a diversion sufficient for me to slip by. It will all end in tears, and Mr. Giggles mind weepings. Let's just head for the hills. The hills are alive with the sound of music sang Morgador Firesword, who, when not either driving the limo or fantasy gaming, numbered amateur theatricals and light opera and the history of musical cinema among his interests, the latter being the subject he hoped to specialize in if he ever got the opportunity to appear on Mastermind. Put a sock in it, called Bob the comical pup. Morgador Firesword put in the sock, and a chill ran down his spine. That dog really did speak. It wasn't some ventriloquist's dummy, or remotely controlled toy, as he had supposed when finally his many forms filled in and signed, 
he'd been allowed to receive Bob into his company and accept that the comical pup was now under his personal protection. And should anything happen to the pooch, the beautiful young woman behind the reception desk had drawn her finger across her throat and mimed death. And she did it with a great deal more conviction and skill than Mr. Giggles mimed weepings. Although Morgador wasn't to know that. So Morgador Firesword put in the sock and got a bit of a sweat on. Are we nearly there yet? asked Bob, bobbing up and down on a rear seat. Only I really need to lift my leg, and it would be a shame to taint your upholstery. Not far now, said Morgador Firesword. Less than half a mile. It's just past that wrecked pub on the right. About half a mile in closing. The voice of Thompson was in the earbead jobby of Constable Cartwright. Constable Cartwright and Constable Rogers now sat in the big truck that had conveyed them from Mornington Crescent, the truck with the very special sat-nav. I see them, said Constable Cartwright, tinkering with this very special sat-nav. Five limos approaching along Pope's Lane. And yes, I can see the heat signatures of the occupants. Who's in the first one, though? A driver and what? A tiny person in the back? It's a dog, said Thompson. Perhaps it's Bullet, said Constable Rogers. Bullet, said Constable Cartwright. Roy Rogers' dog. He had a horse called Trigger and a dog called Bullet. He never did. I thought Rin Tin Tin was his dog. Not a bit of it. Rin Tin Tin was very much his own dog. A bit like the littlest hobo. Same make of dog. The ever-popular Alsatian. Or German Shepherd, as it's now known. Now that it's not so ever-popular. Although I don't think the one in the back of the limo looks anything like a German Shepherd. Don't they wear leather shorts with bells on? There was a moment of silence. Eventually this moment passed. Constable Rogers, came the voice of Thompson into the ear of Rogers. Yes, sir, said that constable. Never mind, said Thompson. How are the invisibility suits, by the way? Everything hunky-dory? The headless constable Rogers regarded his legless colleague. Working a treat, sir, was all he had to say. Johnny Hooker said nothing. He felt it reasonable to assume that they were heading for Gunnersbury Park. Johnny now watched as the traffic lights at the crossing ahead turned red, and a lady in a straw hat dragging a packing case behind her took to crossing the road. And then Johnny ducked down as Constable Paul, Constable Justice, and Inspector Westlake took off toward the rear limousine at the hurry-up. "'And hurry up, do,' said Inspector Westlake. "'I am in charge of security. Me. I.' And he urged the constables forward, across the pavement, into the road." and he tore open the passenger door of the nearest limo. Westlake, he shouted at the passenger within, Head of security, these are my constables. Get in, lads. And with that he was in, just like that, much to the great surprise of Elvis. The lady in the straw hat really was having a great deal of trouble with that heavy packing case. And when the lights turned green, the drivers of the limos took to hooting their horns, and then a couple of them got out and gave her a hand. The lady thanked them very much and bade them the best for the day. "'What was all that about?' asked Mr. Giggles, the monkey boy. "'That was what is called a fortuitous circumstance,' said Johnny Hooker. "'Fortuitous circumstances do sometimes occur when good people require them to.' "'They're a stranger to me,' said Mr. Giggles. "'And formerly to me,' said Johnny. "'But as you can see, or in fact cannot see, "'on this occasion the fortuitous circumstance has served me well.' "'Indeed I cannot see,' said Mr. Giggles, "'what with it being so dark in here and everything. 
inside the boot of the very last limo in the line, which you slipped into whilst the fortuitous circumstance on the crossing was diverting attention, as it were. And Johnny Hooker smiled. To himself. And in darkness. And the limos rolled on, and turned into Gunnersbury Park, passed through the security at the north gate, and rolled forward to a stop in a nice neat line outside the big house. And Countess Vanda stepped out from the big house to welcome the Parliament of Five, the secret government of the world. And she solemnly greeted and solemnly shook each hand in turn, or the paw in the case of Bog the comical pup. And when the greetings and the hand-paw shakings were done, the Parliament of Five entered the big house for their secret meeting, in the company of Constable Paul, Constable Justice, and Inspector Westlake, whose hands had also been shaken by the Countess. And each of them who entered the big house now had a hand, or a paw, that was thoroughly magnetized. And Johnny Hooker bided his time and kept a cool head on his shoulders. And when he felt that sufficient time had elapsed for it to be safe to do so, he flipped up the boot lid and stepped from the limo, to be met by an array of fearsome guns, all of which were aimed at his head. Chapter 45 Johnny Hooker was genuinely scared. As well he might have been, considering. Considering that he now found himself in one of the coal cellars beneath the big house, tied naked but for his cap and elastoplast face furniture, to a bent wood chair and under interrogation, it appeared, by two supernatural beings. Devils or angels? Ghosts or divers boogermen? Johnny wasn't certain, but he was afeard. The monster without the legs, who just sort of floated about, appeared to be the leader. The headless horror was pretty scary, too. Scarier, really, because he didn't have a head. Cough up, you Islamic rotter, demanded the headless one. Somehow. Where have you hidden the explosives? Explosives? asked Johnny. Islamic? asked Johnny. Are you the living dead? he also asked. The creature without the legs smiled at Johnny. Special ops, he said, hence the state-of-the-art camouflage. He pointed to the visible part of himself. He had lots of little solar panel jobbies all over this. And you'll never get your fundamentalist fingers on any of it. Johnny Hooker didn't know what to say. Have you swallowed them? asked the legless being. Johnny Hooker still didn't know what to say. The explosives! Are you a walking bomb? Only one way to find out, said the headless entity. Cut him open and check out his guts. Johnny Hooker now knew what to say. No, he said. Indeed, he wailed this word. I'm not a terrorist if that's what you think I am. I'm a park ranger. I work here. A likely tale, said he without a bounce. We cropped you on our special state-of-the-art sat-nav, sneaking into the rear of the rear limo. You're dealing with the A-team here. Nothing slips by us. Are you alive? Johnny asked. Of course we're bloody alive. What is the matter with you? Probably drugged up, said another fellow. This one also in black, and with the little solar cell jobbies all over his person. They snort ease and rub crack into their genitals to give them courage. There's a website about it. There was another one of those silences. I found it by accident, said Constable Cassidy, for it was he. I was looking for porn. Honest. You're policemen, said Johnny. Of course we're policemen, said Constable Cartwright. And ouch, he continued, as he bumped his invisible knee into a visible table. I keep doing that. 
Constable Rogers tittered. The question that troubles me, he said, is whether I have my helmet on or off. I thought you wore a cap, said Constable Cartwright. I know I do, although I'm no longer certain what color my socks are. You're definitely policemen, said Johnny. We are special operations policemen, said Constable Cassidy, and we'll get the truth from you if we have to torture you to death first. Definitely policemen, said Johnny with some relief. So, said Constable Rogers, do you want to tell us where the explosives are hidden, or should I apply my cigarette lighter to your private parts? Inspector Westlake was in parts private. He was inside the big house, which was something. And he had met Elvis, which was really something. But he did have a job of work to do, and as yet he was still getting no cooperation. You know I'm in charge, don't you? He asked Joan. Joan was on the reception desk in the entrance hall, which looked all spick and span again, because the late Henry Hunter's assistant had worked really hard on it. I normally don't work Sundays, said Joan, and she yawned, because if I've struck lucky during Saturday night's clubbing, I usually spend Sunday morning banging away like there's no tomorrow. Inspector Westlake raised an eyebrow. And don't come all that with me, said Joan. Mrs. Corbett is a good friend of mine, and she phoned me earlier to tell me what you and her had been up to this morning, which is a Sunday. Please note. Inspector Westlake groaned. Exactly, said Joan. Would you like a cup of tea? I've brought my flask. No tea. Inspector Westlake made fists. I'm supposed to be in charge of this secret operation. Did you see that funny little pup that came in here? Joan asked. Dogs aren't normally allowed, you know. I saw the dog said the inspector, and I saw the queen. I was commissioned to take on the responsibility by the queen. And isn't Elvis looking well? Oh, so that's who he was, said Constable Paul. I thought it was Gary Glitter. The sun went behind Heartbreak Hotel, and a hound dog howled in the distance. But it wasn't Bob the Comical Pup. He was having a nap. The queen had Bob asleep on her knee. The Queen and the other members of the Parliament of Five were in the antechamber next door to Princess Amelia's sitting room, where the secret talks were soon to be held. It was where VIPs drank cuppas before big talks got going. The Queen was having a cuppa. Mr. Bagshaw was having a cuppa. Ahab the Arab was having a cuppa. Elvis Presley was having a cuppa. And he had no sugar in his. I have to be careful of sugar, he told Mr. Bagshaw, and fatty acids, of course and anything that isn't high in polyunsaturates, and I always use that L'Oreal on my hair, because I'm worth it. Of course you are, said Mr. Bagshaw. Your hair looks very clean, sir, said Elvis. Head and shoulders, said Mr. Bagshaw. Frequent use. It contains its own conditioner, so I can just wash and go, as it were. It's ideal for a playboy about the town, such as myself. I see, said Elvis. But I suppose it must take quite a long time for you to wash your hair, what with you having such a huge head and everything. No offense meant, of course, sir. None taken, I assure you. We have our own special shampoo, said Her Majesty, tickling the sleeping Bob's ear hole. Made for we by a little man in Piccadilly. It's very exclusive. Contains virgin's milk, and the poo from a wooden horse, and hen's teeth, and all that kind of business. And of course, we don't have to pay for it because we never carry money. Elvis made with the nodding head. Mr. Bagshaw, too. I never use a shampoo, said Ahab the Arab. 
We dodgy, swarthy, Middle Eastern types have little truck with hygiene, as you better educated Western folk must all know. When we're not out buggering the Bedouin, we're to be found at home in our tents, hating Americans and watching reruns of Father Ted. Elvis Presley nodded again. Do they dub Father Ted? he asked. Or do you have subtitles? Dubbed, said Ahab, by the Islamic TV service. Some of the jokes about George Bush are a bit near the mark, but the overall message that there is no God but Allah never fails to hit the spot. I once met the lady who plays Mrs. Doyle, said Her Majesty the Queen. She's much younger in real life, and she doesn't have those moles on her face. The moles aren't real, said Ahab. Stuck on, said Her Madge. Made of Maltesers or something. Ahab the Arab stroked at his beard. You have sorely disillusioned me, he said, sadly and sorely, in a disillusioned tone. The moles are my favorite bit, after the sayings of Muhammad, peace be unto his name. More tea? asked Countess Vanda, moving amongst them with the teapot. Those who wanted more signaled in the affirmative. Those who didn't, did not. Any more of those custard creams? asked Mr. Bagshaw. Any more of those custard creams? Count Otto Black mimicked the words of Mr. Bagshaw. Count Otto Black and his heirloom gang saw all. Saw all and heard all and soon would control all. Magnetized as ripe as a ninepence, said the Count, pulling out an organ stop jobby or two, twiddling a dial, adjusting a stopcock on a barrel, and giving a slender glass conducting tube a gentle rap with his knuckle. Soon they will move to the conference room, and we will adjust their thoughts to our choosing. His evil cohorts clapped their hands. I never got my crisps, said Jack. I never have been, am not now, and never will be a terrorist, said Johnny Hooker. Please don't toast my nuts. I'll tell you anything you want to hear, anything, and if I don't know an answer, I'll make one up. I don't think that's how it's supposed to work, said Constable Cartwright. I think that's pretty much how it always works with torture, said Constable Rogers. Your torture victim is usually in such great pain and under such mental duress that they'll say anything to stop the agony. So what's the point of torture? asked Constable Cartwright. He didn't see Constable Rogers smile. The fun of it, he heard him say. Listen, said Johnny. I'll own up. I'll tell you everything. Don't be too hasty, said Constable Rogers. You wouldn't want to give up without a bit of a fight, surely. I would, said Johnny. I know when I'm licked. There was another moment of silence. But it soon passed. Tell us everything, said Constable Cartwright. Fair enough, said Johnny. But could I have my uniform back first? When you've told us everything. All right. And so Johnny began. And Johnny told the constables everything. Every single thing. Right from the very beginning. About the da-da-dee-da-da code that he thought he could crack how it had left a trail of headless corpses behind, and how he had learned that the heirloom, which he had to explain about in considerable detail because none of the constables had ever heard of such a thing, was going to be put into operation to influence the dignitaries taking part in the secret talks. And every single other thing that Johnny could possibly think of that might have any relevance at all, including how he got to play Robert Johnson's guitar. And when he was done with all this, there was another silence. And quite an intense silence it was. And when all that silence was finally broken, it was broken by the sound of policemen's boots upon a cobbled coal cellar floor, leaving at speed, 
leaving Johnny all alone. I don't really think they believed a word of what you told them, said Mr. Giggles to Johnny. Apart from the last bit, Johnny said. Oh yes, they went for the last bit, about how you were an undercover special operations policeman disguised as a park ranger who had followed Inspector Westlake, who was really none other than Osama bin Laden with his beard shaved off, to this very park, this very morning. Well, it was a bit remiss of them not to notice on their sat-nav two constables and an inspector appear inside that other limo. And Inspector Westlake is a bit of a twat. That too. So do your stuff. My stuff? said Mr. Giggles. Your metaphysical stuff, said Johnny. Untie my hands so I can make my escape. I can't do untyings, said Mr. Giggles. I'm a non-corporeal companion. Yet you pulled the plug from the amps on Friday night to spare myself and the band from being sucked into... where? Hell? For playing Robert Johnson's final song. I did nothing of the kind, said Mr. Giggles. Oh, yes, you did, said Johnny. Now, untie my hands and I promise I'll leave the park at once and never return. You promise, said Mr. Giggles. Scout's honor? On your mother's life and may your nads be nailed to a butcher's block if you're telling a porky pie? Would I lie to you? 